To our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. No, no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has had many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will break the ends of the earth, or judge the ends of the earth, excuse me. He will give strength to this king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom was the people was that any, when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come in with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was still boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it to us now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the man abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod, Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the one that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the praise and worship we've had. We thank you for the ordination of David Haynes. We thank you for the fellowship that we've had. We thank you, Lord, that we are yours. Pray, Father, you take these words I'm about to speak today. With your Holy Spirit, let them make a difference. Ask in Christ's name, amen. Maybe seated. Thank you. Thank you. 
a businessman needed several million dollars to clinch an important deal, and sensing the need for divine help, decided to go to the church to pray for some money. By chance, he knelt next to a man who was praying for $100 to pay an urgent debt. The businessman took out his wallet and pressed $100 into the other man's hand, and overjoyed, the man got up and left. The businessman then closed his eyes and prayed, Dear Lord, now that I have your undivided attention. <laughs> now, the businessman wanted God's undivided attention, but frankly, it isn't God who has the problem. It is us. We really don't have to work that hard for God to hear our prayers. After all, he has promised us that he would listen. Jesus even promised, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. We don't have to work at getting his attention, but too often God has to work at getting ours. A good prayer to emulate is found here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. In it, Hannah gives us an example of someone who knows that she has God's undivided attention. After all, she has just been given a baby after being barren for many years. Look at verse 1 with me. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. There is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. In verses 1 through 10, we are introduced to this wonderful prayer of Hannah. By its end, we're going to see that Hannah's prayer actually turns into a prophecy with implications for the whole world and all of history. In chapter 1, we heard the prayer of a barren woman. Here in chapter 2, we're going to hear the praise of a blessed woman. You read the words of Hannah, you think, where have I heard this before? There is a woman in the New Testament who quotes her parenthetically all through her song. The woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is going to bring forth the man who, like Samuel, is going to turn it all around, but in a much greater eternal scope. We find it in Luke 146. Listen to the similarities. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from all this, this time on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Hannah says in verse 1, I rejoice in the Lord, my horn is exalted. The idea seems to be that the animal's horn is its glory. And with its power and with its head held high, perhaps in triumph after goring an enemy into submission. Now, of course, Hannah doesn't really physically have a horn. That's just a figure of speech. But knowing what we know of Penina, now that chick may have had a horn. <laughs> now, we're in verse 1. The New King James says, I smile at my enemies. The King James, the New American Standard translated something to the effect of, my mouth speaks boldly over my enemies, and that's probably a better translation there. In fact, the Living Bible says, Hannah talked smack. Not really. <laughs> the last time Hannah prayed in verse 10 of chapter 1, things were much different for her. Then she had been deeply distressed, and we see her weeping bitterly. 
not only because she was childless, but also because of the cruel taunts of Penina. But now in verse 1, Hannah speaks of the difference God has made to her heart, her strength, and her mouth. The language is extreme for the very good reason that the impact that God had on her life was overwhelming. I rejoice in your salvation suggests more than Hannah's being delivered from barrenness. Hannah sees this miracle as the beginning of a new victory for Israel, who time after time had been invaded, defeated, and abused by their enemies. The fascinating and wonderful thing there is that that word salvation is Yeshua, which is one of the names of the promised Messiah. King David would be God's Yeshua to deliver Israel from her enemies. And Jesus, the son of David, would be God's Yeshua to deliver all people from the bondage of sin and of death. In particular, she seemed to express the same sentiments as Moses and the people of Israel after they had been rescued from the Egyptians. This is Exodus 15.1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has now become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. When Hannah had prayed for a child, she used language that reminded us of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Hannah had cried out to the God who had seen the affliction of his people in Egypt, and she was asking that same God to look upon her affliction now. The words of her prayer helped us to see that her suffering was in a sense a representation of Israel's suffering. Here we begin to see that Hannah's story stands at the beginning of 1 Samuel because there is a connection yet to be played out between Hannah's story and Israel's story. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for God, he is the God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who are stumbled are girded with strength. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. Here we hear an earthy accent because to whom is Hannah referring? Penina. The language of Hannah's prayer is heavenly, but don't miss a secular inflection in the not-so-subtle references to her rival Penina. I fear that sometimes our prayers are so holy and lofty that we try to hide our true emotions. To such prayers, I believe that the Lord would say, tell me what you're really feeling. I can handle it. After all, I already know all about it. Why? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Since he knows all about us, we can just be open and honest with him. I read about a woman who invited some people to dinner. At the table, she turned to her six-year-old daughter and said, Would you like to say the blessing? I wouldn't know what to say, the girl replied. Just say what you hear mommy say, the woman answered. Dangerous right there. The daughter bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? 
I believe honesty is something the Lord desires from all of his children. Even his own son, when on the cross, when he was feeling that he had been forsaken, he didn't hide that emotion, but fully expressed it. Now, I'm not talking about being disrespectful or forgetting that the one that we pray to sits on the throne of the universe. But at the same time, he is our father and he loves us. A good example of honest praying can be found all throughout the Psalms. Here's an example. Lord, I know that you are good to Israel, but I got to tell you, I'm about to lose it here. That's a very loose translation of Psalm 73.1 in the BSV, the Bill Scott version, hitting stores everywhere. <laughs> the thing I want us to remember is the Lord can handle all of our true and honest emotions. Verse 5, please. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren is born seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set, he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail." The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Verse 5 reminds us that just as Hannah's misery at her barrenness was not unchangeable, so Penina's happiness at her many children was not secure. Life is often like that. God can reverse every human circumstance completely. And the Bible in history is replete with both cases. We find the Pharaohs, the Caesars, and the Neros brought low. But we also find the Josephs, the Davids, and a God born in a stable exalted. We will see him set down Eli and raise up Samuel. He will raise up Saul. Saul disobeys. He gets set down. The Lord raises up David. He crosses the line. He gets set down. He raises up Solomon. He crosses the line. He gets set down. One of the things driven home through the books of Samuel is that God is in charge and he will accomplish his will with or without us. If I were to get disqualified from ministry, the Lord would and could easily replace me. Simply put, the Lord raises up and sits down people because he alone is sovereign, and he still does that today. There was a young man in Akron, Ohio, years ago who worked at a tire plant changing tires. But one night he hears an evangelist make the statement that if you seek God, you can find him. That night the young man goes to his home, goes up to his attic and prays, God, it's me, I want to know you. Well, he's saved that night, and despite having no formal education, he begins to study and even starts to write books. In 1919, just five years after his salvation, he accepted an offer to pastor his first church. His first pastor was in a small storefront town in Nutterfort, West Virginia. 
You may have heard of him. Aiden Wilson Tozer. We know him by his abbreviated name, A.W. Tozer. Now in verse 10, we find another first from the lips of Hannah. In chapter 1, verse 11, we learn that she was the first person in all the Bible to refer to God as the Lord of hosts. And here in verse 10, that word for anointed is Mashiach, or we would say Messiah. This is also the first time that word is used in Scripture. It's also astonishing that Hannah speaks about God's king, because at that time, there was no king in Israel. In some ways, her prayer has moved into the prophetic realm. Thus ends the prayer of Hannah. It is full of lofty praise and exaltation, but revealing the humanity of her soul also. And Hannah's prayer encourages me. The fact that God includes it in his word gives me great freedom to be also be honest and open before him. Verse 11, please. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Up to this point, the focus has been on Elkanah and his family, but now it's going to shift to Eli and his family. Throughout this section, you're going to see a deliberate contrast between Samuel and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's sons abhor the offering of the Lord. But we will see that Samuel ministered before the Lord. The truly sad thing is, Hophni and Phinehas were preacher's kids. They grew up playing in the church. But they were more than this. They were also the sons of the leader of the people. It's kind of like they grew up playing in the rose garden at the White House. Now we see that word corrupt in verse 12. The literal rendering is the word Belial. Now that word is frequently used in the Old Testament as a proper name. It is first used in Deuteronomy 13.13. In the New Testament, it is found only one time in 2 Corinthians 6.15, where it is used as a name for Satan, the personification of all that is evil. Just suffice it to say, Eli's sons are evil, immoral, and wicked men. Is it possible for a man to be in leadership in a church without a saving knowledge of Christ? Yes, it is, and I'll refrain from mentioning names. But in case you didn't know, there are even bishops in some denominations who are avowed atheists and openly and proud homosexuals. So we see that unconverted leadership goes back a long, long way. Well, what does that look like? Verse 13, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and save the man who sacrificed. Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, 
I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men were very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So here we have Hophni and Phinehas serving as priests in the tabernacle at Shiloh. To be a priest was a very special privilege and responsibility, and these two men took advantage of that position. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about such things today, I say with tongue firmly planted in cheek. According to the law, the priests were allowed to take only the breast and right thigh as their share of the sacrifice. And then only after the meat and the fat had been properly sacrificed to God, ensuring that the best portion of the sacrifices were first given to the Lord. Well, to Hophni and Phinehas, rules didn't mean too much. After all, they lived in the final years of the period of Judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And besides, they were priests and their father was the high priest. Therefore, perhaps they felt that they were above the law. They wanted the best for themselves. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. So whenever sacrifices were being offered, Hophni and Phinehas would walk around with a plate, a fork, and some A1 sauce in their hands and snag any piece of meat that they wanted. And if someone protested because they said that meat really belonged to the Lord, they would take meat, the meat by force meant for God just to satisfy their own sinful appetites. And I thought about that. I think Philippians 3.19 fits these guys perfectly. It reads, Their end is destruction. Their belly is their God. Their glory is in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. They were like Pharaoh when he faced Moses. You can hear the belligerence in Pharaoh's voice when he proudly boasted, I do not know the Lord. In this case, that wasn't an admission of ignorance, but an assertion of defiance. Simply put, Pharaoh refused to acknowledge the Lord, and so he would not heed his warnings or his demands. In their own way, Eli's sons were doing the exact same thing. That is what made them sons of Belial. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter, speaking of false teachers, says, In their greed, they will exploit you. That Greek word for exploit is the word emporium. In other words, their desire is to turn you into a marketplace. Just like when you go to a place like the Drug Emporium, where every pharmaceutical there is there that you can imagine, you can just take your choice. Peter is saying that is exactly what these false teachers are doing. They are coming in among you and just taking the choice thing that they want from you. As an aside, in Leviticus 3-9, through God declared that the fat of the sacrifice was to be completely burned on the altar, signifying the offering of it to him. In Old Testament times, that was considered to be the best part of the meat. Therefore, God could have been accused of keeping the best part for himself. But of course, we know now that actually the fat is the worst part of the meat. Therefore, we can now see that God was just protecting his people 
from that which would have harmed them. That's always the way it is with God, by the way. We say, why can't I have that? Why can't I go there? Why can't I do that? God must be keeping something good for me. But the Lord would say, I'm not going to explain what I'm doing because I want you to trust me. But as time goes on, you will see that the things, people, or places I withheld from you would have ultimately been harmful to you. Psalm 8411 assures us, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We see in verse 17 that the people that they had abused were the very people of God. And thus, their actions were a direct offense against the Lord. They had put themselves in terrible danger. It was not just that they had mistreated other people. That's bad enough. But in that situation, God had provided means for dealing with that sin. However, as we saw in verse 17, the offense of the shallow priests was that they showed contempt for the very means provided by God for dealing with their sins. In New Testament times, we would call that trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. And there is nothing more serious in all of the world. Verse 18, please. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and brought it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord, and they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. In stark and direct contradiction to the sons of Eli, we see that even as a child, Samuel is in ministry before the Lord. Now you can be sure that Eli gave Samuel some kind of age-appropriate ministry suiting his young age. It's not like he would hand him a 10-inch butcher knife and tell him to go sacrifice a bull or something. They even made him a little priest ephod uniform. You should have seen it. It was the cutest thing ever. <laughs> but please also notice that Elkanah continues to bring his family to church. Despite the hypocrisy and the sad state of the church at that time, all Elkanah knew was God had commanded him to come three times a year, and so as an act of obedience, he did just that. He didn't use it as an excuse not to come to the house of God. Of course, some people today will use almost any excuse to stay home. Some people wake up tired or with the sniffles and decide not to come to church. We actually had someone who used to come here actually say they were staying home because they had the sniffles. Have you ever had to try to chew on your tongue in order not to say something? It hurts a little. So people decide, I'll just stay home and watch David Jeremiah instead. It saddens me. We had to publicly reprimand Pastor John just last week <laughs> for doing that. 
hey, I'd rather hear David Jeremiah than me too, but if I got to be here, you got to be here. <laughs> actually, actually, in all seriousness, we can learn a lot from the hypocrisy of other people. Some of the lessons of ministry I was able to learn was by watching someone do it right. But some of the lessons that I've learned that have been driven deepest into my life and given a real working place in my life are the lessons I learned while watching someone do something that I knew by Scripture wasn't being done the right way. Am I saying that I am perfect? No, far from it. I will be the first to admit that I walk on feet of clay. So in the will of God, he puts Samuel here in the middle of a bad situation. Because learning how not to do things can be as valuable as learning the correct way to do things and how to be a servant. And so even things were far from perfect, we see Samuel still choosing to serve the Lord. How do you know if you're a servant? There is no one that you will not serve. How do you know if you're a servant? There is no deed so low that you will not do. How do you know if you're a servant? The acid test is we will know what kind of servant we truly are in the way that we react when someone has the audacity to actually treat us like a servant. We learn in verse 21 that Hannah gave the Lord or gave one child to the Lord and she receives now five in return. It's a great illustration of the glorious fact that you cannot outgive God. Many believers never really truly understand God's math. They don't understand his ways or his economy. They go through a lifetime never understanding or comprehending that you can't outgive the Lord. Give God what is his and you will get back more than you could ever imagine. It may not always come in the form of cash. It can also come in the form of joy, peace, contentment, and purpose for living, which no amount of money can buy. This is the last we're going to hear of Hannah and Elkanah. We must assume that they lived out their final days in Ramah, busy with their large family and their annual trips to Shiloh. Henceforth, we're going to turn our attention to the son they left behind at the temple. When closing, the end of verse 21 says, Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. We also need to realize that his story is going to lead into another story. The day came when another boy was growing up. Luke tells us in words that clearly echo 1 Samuel 2.26 these words. This is Luke 2.52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. Let that be true of us. Let's keep increasing in wisdom and in favor with God and men. I left out increasing in stature because we're Calvary Chapel and increasing in size is never a problem. Incredible.